Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted other viruses in some unusual ways. Some of the seasonal viruses that are common in the winter months were almost non-existent in the first year of the pandemic. And since then, they've been a little less predictable. This winter, healthcare providers are worried that the winter months could bring with them a lot of serious illness with COVID, the flu, and RSV, a respiratory illness that is very common among young children and can be very serious. RSV is typically common starting in November, but it struck early this year with some children's hospitals filling to capacity last month. Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines ran out of beds last week because of RSV cases. And in a few minutes, I'll talk with Dr. Derek Zorni of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. But first, we'll find out what it's like to have an infant who is seriously ill with RSV. Sally Hart is a mom who lives in Washington, Iowa, and she has been through this. Her daughter Zara was only three months old when she was hospitalized with RSV in October of 2018. Hello, Sally. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And all right, this happened just about four years ago. Zara was only three months old. What did you see when she was getting sick? Do you remember? Yeah. So our usual really energetic infant became pretty lethargic. She developed a cough and with an infant that age, She was unable to articulate how she was feeling, but um, she also wasn't drinking nearly as much as she used to, and it got kind of scary. Yeah. So you ended up first taking her to the emergency room. What happened during that visit? So we took her to the emergency room because it was a weekend, and we didn't want to wait to have her seen. And they didn't test for RSV at the time. They tested for the flu, and she was negative for that. And they gave us some medication and told us to check in with our primary provider on Monday if she hadn't gotten better. And that's exactly what happened was we took her to our primary provider here in town that Monday, and they did then test her positive for RSV. They were able to give her some nebulizer treatments and things of that nature, and she was able to go back to her babysitter during the week a couple days later. Unfortunately, uh, while I was at work and my husband was at work, our babysitter noticed that her hands and her feet were just really cold. She still hadn't quite gained back that energy. And I met the daycare provider at the doctor's office and then ended up taking an ambulance from Washington to the University of Iowa Children's Hospital. And she was admitted for three days. Oh, my goodness. That must have been so scary. What was going through your mind? Yeah, it was incredibly scary. Uh, First-time mom, so everything's new. And those first few months are stressful as it is. You're trying to provide for this child while recovering yourself and providing breast milk for her. And it was was very scary. We were really lucky to have all of the support around us with our local provider, the ambulance service, and then with the children's hospital so close. So what kind of treatment did she receive in the hospital? Immediately, she got put on oxygen, and that really helped so that her body wasn't having to do all of the work on its own. And after having that about a week of watching her myself, I think that first night in the children's hospital is probably one of the best nights of sleep that I had as a mother. 
because I knew that she was being cared for, that she was being monitored, that I could kind of take a step back and let her be cared for by the professionals. So she was in the hospital for three days. Tell me what it was like when you went home. You know, I don't think that alert ever quite goes off when you're a parent, but we were really lucky to have some really close friends who came and helped us and provided meals uh, so we could kind of get back into our routine. My husband and I were really a good team when it comes to parenting and having each other to lean on was really helpful. So RSV is very common, and we're going to talk a lot about this illness in a moment. But as a parent who has had a child become seriously ill with RSV, what do you want other parents or other people who interact with kids to know? Yeah, and we we did a lot to try to prevent RSV, other illnesses. And this was pre-pandemic, so um, I think that some of those habits are more ingrained in us now, but as simple as washing your hands before you're holding an infant, don't kiss the babies, avoid spreading those germs, and even thinking about how they put their hands in their mouths so frequently. Um, you know, if a parent asks for a boundary to be met, whether that's, like I said, washing your hands or so forth or staying home, even if you just have a cold to prevent that spread, because what their little bodies can handle and what our adult bodies can handle, two very different things. And Zara is four now. How is she now? She is energetic as ever. She just had a great Halloween and you would never know it. But we did have this summer where there was a known exposure to RSV. And as you mentioned in the introduction, that exposure was very out of season from what we were told to watch for. Thank you, Sally, so much for talking with me. Yes, thank you. Sally Hart. Her daughter, Zara, who is now four years old, was hospitalized with RSV when she was an infant. Now, RSV is hitting hard already this year, with pediatric units seeing an unprecedented number of cases for so early in the season. Dr. Derek Zorni is a pediatric hospitalist at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and clinical associate professor of pediatrics, general pediatrics, and adolescent medicine at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. And he is with me now. Dr. Zorni, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. And I think first, I've been saying RSV because it's difficult for me to actually say the name of the disease, and I'm not sure it's that helpful. But tell me, what is RSV? Yeah, RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It is a it is a respiratory virus that affects humans and really causes diseases in all ages, but particularly can hit hard for young infants, young children, and elderly adults. All right. So this is something that we probably have all had at some point or another. Um, When an adult gets RSV, what does that look like? So for uh, typically for an adult who gets RSV, they will have just mild cough and cold symptoms. So runny nose, cough, congestion, it'll feel like any other respiratory cold. All right. So we just will say, I have a cold and we we move right along. Um, For kids, how common is it? It's extremely common. So prior to the COVID pandemic hitting in 2020, it was estimated that virtually all children were exposed or had contracted RSV by the time they were two. And it is a leading cause of uh, sort of morbidity and unfortunately causes mortality in young infants and children. And so the CDC estimated that somewhere around 60,000 pediatric patients less than the age of five would get hospitalized each year due to RSV. All right. So when a child, particularly a young child, an infant or a toddler, gets RSV, what symptoms are notable? Yeah, most commonly the infants and young children are going to present with decreased feeding. 
they won't feed as well as typically. They will have some coughs, some congestion, runny nose. And then as the days progress, usually those symptoms uh, may just get better, and that may be the extent of their illness. And unfortunately for some for some children, their illness will progress and they'll start to have uh, audible wheezing. So you can hear more significant sounds when they're taking breaths. They'll have a lot more cough and congestion. And sometimes they have a lot of trouble breathing. And that will show up for a parent as seeing the child start to breathe faster and then visible evidence that they're working harder to breathe. So the early symptoms that you talked about, again, could look like any number of viruses. How do you know it's time to seek medical attention? Uh, that's a really good question. We talk about that a lot with parents in a clinic visit or when they're getting ready to go home from the hospital. And and in general, we want uh, parents are so good at recognizing what's normal for their child. And so it's good advice that if you if you are watching your child and the way they're breathing or the way they're acting is making you concerned, that should always be a red flag for reaching out to your care provider. Specifically, when we talk about these respiratory illnesses, not just RSV, but influenza or any of the other viruses that are circulating this time of year, if a child's having high fevers, if they are not eating and drinking well, if they aren't acting appropriately for a parent, and if they're working harder to breathe. And again, in young children, that manifests as that they're breathing faster than normal and increase work of breathing with each breath. And so when a young child is working hard to breathe, some of the signs you can see is first you'll see that their belly sucks in with each breath. And then as they progressively work harder to breathe, you'll actually see that their uh, rib cage looks more pronounced, sort of the skin pulls in around their rib cage. And then if you look in the supraclavicular region, which is sort of between your collarbones and your, and your neck, that space will appear to suck in with each breath. And then some final signs of really increased work of breathing are what we refer to as head bobbing and nasal flaring, where you can actually watch the child kind of heave their chest and pick up their chin. They're really bobbing their head. And that's a sign that they're really working hard with each breath they're taking. Those are definitely things that you need to seek care for. And uh, Sally mentioned a few minutes ago that one of the things that, that really alerted her to a serious situation was that her care provider noticed that her three-month-old daughter's hands and feet were cold. Is that something to look for? I don't usually, that is certainly a concerning feature in a young infant. Um, I don't know that that's something I commonly hear parents notice or even physicians notice. Um, that can be a sign of much more serious disease where you're not delivering appropriate uh, blood flow or circulation to your extremities. So I'm very worried about a child if that's a physical exam finding. Um, usually for an RSV illness, what parents are bringing their child to attention for it, it our fevers or the cough congestion, increased work of breathing, or poor feeding, because some of the infants simply can't keep up with their sort of fluid intake to stay hydrated. Well, and I can imagine that with a three-month-old infant, it's it's harder to see that labored breathing than it would be with an older child. The older the child is, the easier it is to see any of these symptoms. Yeah, it... Uh, you know, my experience is that we actually spend a lot of time looking at young infants. Parents love their children. And so parents spend a lot of time watching babies, whether that's doing during sort of hugs and cuddles time or feeding time. So 
there's a lot of observation that takes place of infants. And so I don't know that I would say we notice increased work of breathing more in older kids just because they're bigger. I think, again, parents are so good at recognizing when things aren't right for their children. All right. And if it feels not right, it's time to ask for help. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We're talking specifically about RSV right now. It is a respiratory disease, a very common respiratory virus that affects many people every winter and can be particularly dangerous for young children. Dr. Derek Zorni of University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics is here with me, and we'll talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. As winter is coming, so are the common seasonal illnesses that we see during the winter months. But the last couple of years have been pretty unusual, and things are shaping up to possibly be unusual and concerning this year as well. We are seeing, for example, RSV cases hitting early this year. That's a respiratory illness that particularly can be dangerous for young children. And with me to talk about it, Dr. Derek Zorni. He's a pediatric hospitalist at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and clinical associate professor of pediatrics and general pediatrics and adolescent medicine at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. And before the break, we were talking about what RSV is and what some of the symptoms are, how a parent knows when it's time to seek help. Have you already noticed that this year is different? Are you seeing more patients with RSV? So we are seeing more patients and a little bit at an unusual time of year for seeing this volume of patients is really what's being reported across the United States. The the last two and a half years have been strange in so many ways. And especially that first year of the pandemic, a lot of these seasonal illnesses just weren't that present because of all of the precautions that the people were taking and because kids were largely being kept at home. So I know that we were seeing RSV cases the summer of 2021, which is a really unusual time to see RSV cases. How did last year's winter season shape up with this virus? So we did not really experience much of a winter RSV season. What we experienced is what the CDC terms an interseasonal RSV activity, which you mentioned was actually kind of peaked in July, August of 2021 and really had kind of waned by December of 2021. And so there is the very real sense that those mitigation strategies that were used during the COVID-19 pandemic that you mentioned of having people wear masks, uh, practicing social distancing, school closures were associated with a very significant reduction in pediatric respiratory illnesses associated with RSV and influenza and those other respiratory viruses. And I mentioned earlier that 
most of the time children have contracted RSV by age two. What is interesting about RSV and perhaps most unfortunate is that we we don't seem to generate longstanding immunity. So children can have RSV. You can contract RSV multiple times within one season and you can contract it in subsequent years. When you get a repeat infection as a young child with RSV, in general, it's felt to be a milder course of illness. And so now we're in kind of this weird space where the immunity patterns have shifted because of those mitigation strategies. And so now we're starting to experience uh, RSV season with a cohort of young infants, particularly those under two, who haven't previously been exposed to it. And so that, I think, is part of what the challenge is for us. All right. So they they may be experiencing more severe cases because they've never been exposed to it before. That is a thought out there. All right. And we're never going to know the the full truth of all of the things because there are so many different elements that go into a season like this. We were talking about taking a child to the hospital or, or to a doctor's office. We have a test for RSV, right? We do. There's a, there's two sort of commonly used tests, which would be doing a nasopharyngeal swab. I used to have to explain what that is, but everybody knows. Everybody now. has been tested for COVID now, right. and so most people know what that is. And we can either do a PCR test for RSV or an antigen test, and either one in young children are are pretty good and accurate. All right. Um, so another thing that, that we talked about earlier when I was talking to the mom who'd had a daughter hospitalized with RSV, she said when she took her to the emergency room, they didn't test for RSV. Is that something that parents should advocate for if it's not thought of? Uh, that is a really good question. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to give you an academic medicine answer to it, which is that Strictly speaking, we don't have an effective therapy for RSV. And so knowing whether or not a child who presents with an acute respiratory illness has RSV or rhinoenterovirus or parainfluenza virus is not going to change our medical management for that child. We are going to give the same advice if they require hospitalization. We're going to give the same supportive care. And so uh, I am a parent. I understand the concept of, of wanting to know what's making my child sick. And so uh, that is commonly something that is done. But strictly speaking, it's not necessarily going to change how we take care of your son or daughter. All right. And we don't have a vaccine for RSV. We current There are currently no RSV vaccines, although there is some pro- very promising news on the horizon, and many people may have actually seen more recent news about the RSV vaccines that are under development. So I can imagine a lot of parents thinking, okay, the hospitals are full of kids with RSV right now. I have a one-year-old or a two-year-old thinking, what do I do? How can I protect my child from this? And what I'm hear you say, hearing you say is you can't entirely protect your child from this. We, we can't entirely protect a child from, from RSV in the sense that it is a relatively easy to spread virus and we don't have a vaccine to prevent it from causing disease in humans. That's not to say that we can't do things in terms of our behaviors to try to reduce our exposure to infections. Uh, it's a little, um, perhaps a, feels a little cliched to say the same things year after year. And we've certainly said these 
ad nauseum during the COVID pandemic that there are behavioral things that we can do to try to prevent many of these respiratory infections. And so I want to make the point that uh, RSV and influenza and many of these viruses that cause respiratory infections in humans, in general, they're spread by respiratory droplets that come from uh the nose or throat of infected people when they cough or sneeze. So if we think about the behaviors that we as human beings can do to prevent either sharing those droplets with other people or prevent from picking them up and and uh, contracting them into ourselves, they're very simple behavior things. So covering your mouth when you cough and sneeze. Um, if you blow your nose in a tissue, throw the tissue away. Practice good hand hygiene. Uh, so frequent hand washing and whether you use an alcohol hand sanitizing rub or soap and water, um, both better than not practicing good hand hygiene. And keeping your hands off your face. This is something that people don't think about very often, but these viruses, particularly RSV, can live on surfaces for several hours. So someone can come walking by our table here, cough and sneeze on it, and then in the subsequent period of time, we could run our hand across it and then we touch our eyes, we touch our mouth and we could contract the illness in that way. And so making sure that you keep your hands off your face as much as possible, particularly eyes and mouth and nose um, is good practice and cleaning and disinfecting those surfaces that people touch all the time. So I remind people about cell phones and mobile devices and um, keeping those things clean for parents, particularly parents who have a, a family with multiple young children. Uh, we all know that children explore their world via touch and taste. Toys go in young children's mouths. They get slobbered on. And so if there's an illness in your household and you have multiple young children trying to clean those toys to the best of your ability. And limiting our sharing of, of objects. So not sharing utensils, not sharing cups in a household if someone in the household has cough and cold symptoms. And then I think the perhaps something that is very important for us to think about is the ways that we can protect ourselves and our loved ones from those infections for which we do have an effective preventative therapy, if you will, in the ter in terms of vaccination to try to prevent disease. And so very important to get your annual influenza vaccine and to um, receive your COVID-19 vaccination series. And now we're in the space where you can, depending on when you got your original COVID-19 vaccine series, you may be due for an updated booster. And so those, those are viral infections that we can prevent uh, with vaccination. And so I think it's important to do so. And we know that uh, there was a much lower uptake for vaccination among children. Parents chose not to get their kids vaccinated for COVID-19. A lot of parents made that choice. Um, is that something that, that parents should be thinking about right now in going into these winter months is, okay, maybe I made that choice when the vaccines became available but maybe that's something to revisit? I think so. I think if uh, parents made the decision not to pursue COVID-19 vaccination for their children, um, COVID-19 has not gone away. And we have vaccines that are safe and effective for children over the age who are six months and older. And so I would encourage families who may be hesitant or have questions about the COVID-19 vaccination to have a discussion with their healthcare provider. Talk through what are your concerns specifically and, and hopefully have a fruitful conversation. 
COVID-19 and RSV are both respiratory illnesses. And uh, last year when we, I was talking to a different doctor about that summer surge of RSV, he was really concerned about having children in the hospital who had both covid and RSV. Is that something that, that you've been seeing with kids? And is that a, a particularly dangerous combination? That's a really good question. And I don't know that academically we know the answer to that yet. Um, one, of the, one of the issues that complicates as we look at respiratory illnesses in people is I mentioned that you can test with what we call an antigen test or a PCR test. So when you do a PCR test, we're actually detecting pieces of the virus. It's not telling you if that virus is active alive or if that's sort of old dead virus, if you will. And so if we do PCR testing after you have a viral illness, well, we are likely to get a positive PCR test for a period of time, even when you're no longer ill. And so in young children who tend to have the phenomenon, unfortunately, as parents know, of getting multiple illnesses during a season, if we do a uh, respiratory viral panel or a PCR test and it turns positive for COVID-19 and influenza or COVID-19 and RSV, it can be a little tricky to sort out, are these both active causing the illness right now? Or was one of them the cough, cold congestion that happened two or three weeks ago that the child got better from and now they're sick again? So it gets a little complicated. Um, I think the the correct answer would be certainly either any of these viruses can make a child sick. And so certainly if you have multiple infections at the same time, it makes sense that you might be sicker. But I don't know that we have clear, discrete data to support it because I think the answer is complicated. Yeah. Well, I know that when it got to be time to start talking about flu vaccinations for this upcoming season, a lot of people, a lot of health practitioners were talking about the possibility of having a, a so-called twindemic, that we might see a COVID surge in the winter and a much worse flu season since we've had relatively light flu seasons for the last two years. And now I'm seeing the term triple-demic, um, people concerned about COVID and the flu and RSV. And I know that there's a lot in the world to worry about. Is that something that you and other physicians are talking about, being concerned that we could be headed into a really, really difficult winter season? Uh, I'm going to say yes to that. And the reason I say yes is because we this isn't new, actually, for us in pediatric medicine. It, it's traditionally been the case that when we get into winter months, when uh, children tend to be grouped together more, we will see more of these respiratory illnesses. And so if you look at a traditional RSV respiratory season, it is somewhere between October and May. And if you look at a normal influenza season here in the Midwest, it typically starts to peak in December, January, February. So we traditionally always see RSV and influenza seasons that have some degree of overlap. The challenge, I think, for us right now across the country is that we're seeing multiple viruses in high frequencies with, a, with what feels to be an early RSV season upon us. And so that does make people nervous if we're already seeing children's hospitals and clinics and emergency departments having to care for a large volume of pediatric patients this early in the winter, the history would tell us that we should expect to see more 
viral activity as we continue to get into the winter months. And so that's concerning. And I think any parent who has ever had young children who start preschool or start at a daycare or, you know, start school after primarily having been at home for a few years knows that 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 mixing with other children on a regular basis their kids are going to get sick <laughs> and, and pretty pretty frequently. Um, do you feel like that is going to be amplified since so many kids were relatively isolated for a while? Or do you think that that effect may have already waned? I don't I don't know, to be honest. I think that what you described is sort of the the lived experience of parents that human beings, we are social creatures, which means we are going to pass these sorts of infections back and forth by our very nature. And young children uh, are around other young children frequently. And so these things do get passed back and forth. It, um, for what we talked about earlier in, in the show, the concern was that we have this cohort of young children who hadn't previously perhaps been exposed to as many. And so are we going to see as uh, significant or as frequent of illnesses as we may have experienced in a, a more traditional time prior to the COVID pandemic? I don't think that we have the answer to that yet. One of the things that I said to myself frequently as my kids were going through that phase where they got sick all the time was that they're building a healthy immune system. We're this. There are elements of this that are good for them. And of course, nobody wants their child to be seriously ill or to be hospitalized. Was there some validity to what I was telling myself that that it's not a bad thing for kids to get minor viruses? I, I think it's I don't think it's a bad thing. I have this conversation frequently with the parents of children who are in the hospital. You know, they, they it is exhausting as a parent to have a child who is sick time after time after time and Yet we know that that's sort of the the normal state of affairs for young children is that they will get recurrent viral infections and the length of time that they're sick will differ. And if they get them back to back or they go a month in between may differ and, and each child is different, right? Some parents will say, well, Johnny, uh, Johnny never seemed to get sick as much as Susie does now sort of thing. And that's just... We don't have a great answer for all of that, but it is a part of the sort of lived human experience. We don't want people to be sick. We all know how uh, it feels terrible to have cough, cold, congestion, fevers. None of us feel good, but it is part of being human, unfortunately. So with kids heading into this season, what I'm hearing you say is get vaccinated yourself for what you can get vaccinated for, get your kids vaccinated for what they can get vaccinated for, wash your hands and, and take some of those basic precautions that we know can help people stay well. And when your child seems like they need help, ask for help. Am I missing anything? No, that is completely accurate. Dr. Zorni, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I've been talking with Dr. Derek Zorni. He is a pediatric hospitalist at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and clinical associate professor of pediatrics, general pediatrics, and adolescent medicine at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. We've been talking about RSV and other seasonal viruses. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community 
generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. And I think we all know by now that the Thanksgiving story we learned in elementary school is not an accurate depiction of what happened when the pilgrims arrived on the shores of this continent. Even though we may know that story is a myth, the true history of the United States, particularly when it comes to indigenous people, is not widely known or acknowledged. That's why Siskawis Nobis coined the term truthsgiving as a different way to mark that fourth Thursday in November. And this year, there will be two truthsgiving celebrations in Iowa that the public can attend, one in Iowa City at the Englert Theater on November 11th and the other at Western Iowa Tech Community College in Sioux City on November 15th. Sikawis Nobis is Plains Cree Solto of George Gordon First Nation and the founder and executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. And she is on the line with me now. Sikawis, welcome back to the show. Tansi, hello. Thank you for having me here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Obviously, you want to put this mythology about Thanksgiving that that we were all taught as children to rest. I want to put it to rest. But you do, in spite of the fact that, that I think it is generally known that this is mythology, you do see this myth perpetuated still as as part of our culture. Tell me about what you're, you're seeing. Well, um it is unfortunate, but I, you know, the the idea that uh, pilgrims and indigenous peoples came together uh, and had a nice dinner um, is still widely believed and um, still uh, perpetuated uh, commercially uh, and you know throughout uh, the country uh, in various ways. You know, even in schools still, um, and you know, at, at family dinners. Um, and like sometimes um even in in small towns you know like um there's still these like you know plays that are uh enacted um and so it it is it is a you know we think it's 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 widely known at this point um it doesn't mean that people are going to stop perpetuating the myth you coined this term truthsgiving, but you coined the term for something that you had been doing and many other indigenous people had been doing uh, for several years. Tell me about the idea behind truthsgiving. Yeah, the idea behind truthsgiving is nothing unique. Um, uh, there, there has been um, uh, opposition to Thanksgiving uh, on behalf of indigenous peoples for a very long time. I mean, um, it, it you know it it's believed that you know since 1621 there was this mutually sanctioned gathering, right? Um, and it's created you know false uh, stereotypes uh, and you know frankly you know dangerous notions of like what indigenous peoples are and because it romanticizes us and tokenizes us and doesn't tell like you know the truth of you know colonization and genocide in this country. And so um, in 1970, uh, J- uh, Frank James uh, of the uh, Wampanoag, um, and this is out, you know, east um, where the, you know, Mayflower was supposed to have, uh, you know, set. Um, and he, he wrote a speech uh, for the annual celebration of the landing of the pilgrims, which is held every year in Plymouth, um, Massachusetts. And uh, that speech um, said in there, 
the pilgrims had explored the shores of Cape Cod for four, four days before they had robbed the graves of my ancestors and stolen their corn, wheat, and beans. And um, the people that organized this event uh, did not like it. Um, they told him that he wasn't allowed to, to tell his speech, and so he, he, he didn't. Um, and because of that, um, um, the Wampanoag community and the United American Indians of New England started this uh, National Day of Mourning in 1970, and they've been carrying that out ever since. So it's been a, a long time. Um, and then there's folks at Alcatraz. Um, the, I, I'm sure a lot of people know about the Alcatraz resistance um, back in the uh, early 70s. Um, and out of that resistance, a few years, years later, um, came the sunrise ceremony, um, which is an, like an anti-Thanksgiving Day event as well that is held on the island. And then just generally across the nation, um, there are anti-Thanksgiving Day um, events and even um, protests to parades um, that have been going on. And um, I, I just, you know, I feel the same way. I, I don't celebrate it as an Indigenous person. And uh, so within my own family, you know, we would always celebrate um, this idea of truth-giving uh, because, you know, I am who I am and I do what I do. And we would talk about the truth, you know, what really um, is happening, um, uh, you know, on this what really happened and, and what we can do and what's the truth about indigenous peoples and, and uh, the, the theft of land, uh, the theft of labor in this country. And um, my friend, actually a local uh, musician here in um, Iowa city one day said, you know, you should, you should do truth giving like, you know, like literally like out, out in the world. And so as Great Plains Action Society, we started to host a truth giving at a variety of venues. Um, and, and this year we're going to be at, at the Englert. And frankly, there's um, even some folks in North Carolina, some uh, an indigenous organization uh, called Seven Directions that's going to be hosting a truth giving event as well. So, of course, that day, that fourth day in November is a day... It's a national holiday. It's a day that people have off. It's a day that people traditionally have spent with family. And so if you're looking for an alternate way to mark that day, you're still doing a lot of the same things. Can you tell me in your family uh, how you mark that day? I still like to have turkey. It's an indigenous um, <laughs> animal here to, um, you know, this country. Uh, but, you know, we also eat indigenous foods. Um, and uh, we we just, you know, talk about the truth. And we do the truth, too. That's the other aspect of this. Um, uh, as an organization, we've been trying to implement more mutual aid efforts on this day. Uh, and, like, hoping that people can understand that, like, yes, we are celebrating the harvest. Yes, we're with our family. But there's so much more going out in the going on out on the outside of your home that is important to pay attention to um indigenous peoples you know have the highest rates of missing and murdered people in this country um you know even in sioux city where one of the one of our truth giving events is going to take place at western tech community college um the houseless rate um uh is 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 42 to 63 percent indigenous hmm. native american and so like you know yes let's let's be together as a family like let's celebrate the harvest but then let's remember that you know we are lucky to actually be having you know a dinner with our family with food on the table and so 
the idea of Thanksgiving is like not to take away from like celebrating um, this day with family because that's important. And frankly, there's not much, there, there's not a lot of American traditions out there, right? Like that are like, um, I guess you could say that re- revolve within, you know, white culture. Um, so it's nice. I think it's nice, but we have to absolutely abolish the mythology. Tell me about the celebrations that, that you'll be having. So uh, I mentioned there will be one at the Englert Theater on November 11th and then another one in Sioux City on November 15th. What will you be doing at the Englert Theater? And if people can buy tickets, people can come and, and be a part of this event. Uh, what will the experience be like? Um, we usually uh, like to celebrate. I mean, um, celebrate and, and, and speak um, the truth. And so um, this year, uh, the uh, Indigenous band uh, Audio Pharmacy, who live out in Pomo lands, north of San Francisco, um, and who are friends of mine, will be joining us to to play their wonderful music. They are absolutely amazing. I would really recommend uh, your audience to check them out. Um, and they'll be joining us, and uh, we will have the Native Harmony drummers, um, led by Kenneth Provost, um, coming from Sioux City to join us, um, and we will have speakers uh, from uh, different communities uh, talk about why um, it's super important to uh, educate our uh, family uh, and our friends about you know what's really behind uh, Thanksgiving and uh, change it up a bit. Um, you can actually go to um, our truthsgiving.org page and take the pledge. Um, if, if, if you're interested and, uh, it's, it's really not a big deal. It's just educating yourself, educating others and giving back to the community. What will the celebration in Sioux City be like? I mean, that's a, about four days later. It's that one's over the noon hour with 11 to one o'clock. So it'll be a little <laughs> bit different kind of celebration. Absolutely. Um, it's it's more of a, of a, of a teaching, uh, opportunity. Uh, Trisha Ottringer, our missing and murdered Indigenous uh, relatives director um, is going to be uh, doing uh, two separate presentations over that uh, two-hour period uh, to the community, uh, for the community, uh, about truth-giving. Um, uh, you know, just just teaching them about it. Um, you know, I'll be also doing a couple more presentations throughout the state um, to various entities, uh, just, you know, telling everybody about truth-giving. So you came up with this term, truthsgiving, and it feels like that has really resonated with people. It has caught on in a way that the idea wasn't catching on, I think, with the general population before. Why do you think the term truthsgiving has become so powerful? Um, I think it's because it's, it's not taking away from the idea of gathering with our families and having a good meal. And I think that's a very indigenous thing. I think that celebrating the harvest um, is also a very indigenous thing. And so I like that part about Thanksgiving. I like that people are, you know, giving thanks for what they have. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the idea of Thanksgiving, you know, um, perpetuates those dangerous mythologies that I've, you know, talked about. And um, that's the part that has to change. And I think that's the easy part to change. Um, I don't know if you can decolonize, you know, a colonizer holiday, 
but like I guess you could say like that's sort of what's happening. We're trying to take out the you know the colonizer mythology um from the that and and I think I think that that is I think that that's an easy lift. I think that most people can make that can make that ask. Uh, of course, um, when you're talking to the general population of the United States, many of us are descended from colonizers. And um, this celebration of Thanksgiving is something that, that we have grown up with. And we did participate in those little plays in elementary school. Even if we understand that that, that is mythology, um, the way that we celebrate this holiday, of course, is deeply ingrained in a lot of people. And I can also imagine that there are some people that think, OK, as a white American, is this something that I should be celebrating? Is that cultural appropriation? So tell me, um, as, a, as a white American, how do you feel about embracing thing, or truthsgiving and, and how I should be celebrating with my family? I think it's great if you embrace truthgiving. I think everybody should. Um, I think that it should become just a a common way of celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if the name of Thanksgiving will ever change, but um, you know, uh, just having the idea of truthgiving um, uh, beside Thanksgiving, I think, is is really uh, key to changing so much. I mean. We are still living in a very um, racist society, um, you know, as we very much well know. Um, and uh, indigenous folks, black folks, you know, Latino, Latina, Asian Americans, like so many folks right now are facing, you know, um, such severe um, oppression. And, you know, like this is one of the reasons because, you know, white supremacy has been so institutionalized within like almost everything that is a part of this society. So, um, you know, just calling that out and, and making those changes are, are ex- exceedingly important. Um, my, you know, my son, just like when he was in kindergarten, was getting taught this mythology of uh, truth-giving um, at, you know, Shimmick Elementary. I mean, it was really disturbing to me. And that, you know, so it's not like it's this far off thing. Right. Not very long ago and in a community that is considered to be progressive. Um, yes. Your son had that experience. The, yes. the, the term truth-giving, as I said, seems to have really resonated with people. It even um, made its way into a television moment with former President Donald Trump. I mean, did you ever imagine <laughs> imagine that this term would um, would reach as far as it has. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm only speculating on that. Um, CNN picked up um, this, you know, art, they picked up on an article I wrote. If folks want to go to Bustle and type in my name, um, they'll, they'll see this article I wrote um, called Thanksgiving Promotes Whitewash History. So I organized Truthgiving instead. And so CNN wrote about uh, Trump's, you know, typical deplorable behavior he, the 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 president has an overseas call every year um, with troops uh, on Thanksgiving, and he just did a very bad job at it. Like you know, like we all know that uh, Trump had had done, um, and they were basically complaining about this um, in in an article, and they were interviewing um, you know the the I don't know what they would be the colonels and sergeants over there, and um, 
they then they 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 talked about how truth how Thanksgiving is problematic, you know, just in general. And then they quoted uh, this article, um, and it's really funny because very shortly after, uh, Trump was talking about how he he's so um, he's never going to give in to um, these like uh, changes that are trying to be made, um, like with Columbus Day, he'll always celebrate Columbus Day and celebrate you know Italian Italian American heritage, and he'll never go with any of these like newfangled names for you know Thanksgiving. He'll always celebrate you know what Thanksgiving is really about, and he'll never he'll never change the name. He said something like that. Um, I should probably find the. I don't. I don't think that was about like. All right. Well, I don't know. Maybe. But it 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 certainly <laughs> seems to be traveling. And thank you so much for uh, just as as an individual for giving me language to talk about enhancing this holiday that is such a very important part of my life and my family's life. I really appreciate it. I, you're welcome, and I, I, I encourage folks to go to our Truthsgiving event at the Englert. Um, you can get uh, tickets free or by donation, and to go to truthsgiving.org. Sakawa's Nobis is Plains Cree Solto of George Gordon First Nation. She's founder and executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. We've been talking about Truthsgiving, and there will be two Truthsgiving celebrations in Iowa, one in Iowa City at the Englert Theater on November 11th, and the other at Western Iowa Tech Community College in Sioux City on November 15th. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.